Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. We're not! We're not starting now! Now! We're bloody recording and we're off. Ah, it's been a roller coaster of a morning, I can tell you that. And now we are uh, hitting hitting the airwaves hard. And I don't mean the um, eucalyptus-flavoured chewing gums. So here we are. Nat is uh, just, I mean, finishing off some last-minute details on his phone. And now he's with us. Here he is. Uh, No, he's back on his phone. Maybe someone's replied. No, 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 now he's back. Right in Um, the room. I was just holding the fort there. Um, sorry. Sorry, guys. Here, here we are. My name is Nick. This is... Nathaniel Metcalf. <laughs> and you are listening to Nick and... Nathaniel Metcalf, sir. <laughs> fan club. club. It's not uh, just in case we've got new, new listeners here. It's not our fan club. We're not like, It's not a club that celebrates us. It's uh, our. We own it. We we, we run it. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, we're like very much like Jeff at Biker Grove, and <laughs> you are uh, PJ and Duncan and Spuggy. Uh, use the club all you like, but please don't smoke in the building, uh, and look after the pool table. Put the sticks where you found them, because uh, if you leave them on like a just lying around people sit on them and they snap and then that's extra work for me and that to do um but apart from that you know just uh, fill your boots you know it should be should be a bit fun we're open till half five and then it's home time so <laughs> first rule of uh fan club <laughs> tell your friends Tell friends about fan club, isn't it? It's just, I mean, it's simple. We've been, we, we say it over and over and again, but it's like uh, first rule of fan club: tell your tell your friends about fan club. Uh, the second, second rule, rule. Of fan club. please, for the love of God, tell your friends about fan club. About fan club, isn't it? It's just tell your friends about fan club. So. Um, that's. I think that's all of the. Uh, that's all of the administerial duties out yeah. of the way, Daniel. Well, one other little bit, I suppose, it's sort of a regular feature, is to say we're currently sixty-eight in Malta this week. But we couldn't remember if that was up or down from last week. I think weren't we like sixty-four last week? Oh, that's no good. Uh, I've got a feeling it might. I think I've got a feeling it's down, or maybe we're sixty-seven. But I think it's down by a little bit. Did all our Maltese people to listen and last week and tune in, but it sounds like they haven't been. That is, yeah. I mean, that is a real. uh, That is a real shame. Um, You know, to specifically ask uh, an entire country Hmm. to do you a favour. Yeah, and they're almost like, um, you know, they've willfully done the opposite. Yeah, I don't think we ask a lot of people. Although it does remind me of uh, does remind me of uh, Edinburgh two thousand and four, mm-hmm. where um, I had a show with my friend Rob called uh, Love Life. Uh, we were on at sea venues, but an out of the way one. I think we were in like Indigo Bar. Uh, and uh, we did it, I think we were on probably about, like, we were either on about 9.30 or 11, 11-ish, 
it was like an evening one, but it wasn't midnight because I'd done midnight before. And we would flyer every day. Rob was a terrible flyer. Uh, and I hated flyering, but I did it. But Rob hated it. Um, uh, he was good on stage, but in terms of promoting stuff, it was it was tough. Um, so we would promote every day, and we would get very small audiences, three, four. I don't think we cancelled, but once we did it in front of a mum and her son. Uh, and her son, I think it was, I think... They were Americans, I was going to say an American couple, uh, but there was uh, two Americans, Maggie was the mum and Dylan was the <laughs> son. Um, and they sat there and every time we did a joke, she it was a tiny venue, so it was cabaret seating, but I think there was about two rows of cabaret seating where they were sat right against the flat wall. Uh, it was like, it was wider than it was longer, you know, story of my life. And... Um, uh, and they were sat on the front row right in the middle and we came out on stage. So we were about, I would say, maximum three feet away from them while we performed this entire hour of comedy. Um, it was a play, but it was sort of like a loose play. Uh, it was like a, a presentation spoof, you know? It was like a, a PowerPoint presentation spoof. It was called Love Life. It was about uh, the world's youngest... Uh, self-help uh, um, specialists who had fallen out with each other years ago and years later had decided to team up to do one last hurrah uh, because one of them <laughs> had a breakdown and the other one was trying to help them out, right? That was the... that was the, And then it was and a PowerPoint it's... show which sort of, like, fell apart. Um, gurus, self-help gurus. And Maggie and Dylan were sat in the front row, and all the way through it, she would shake her head and, <laughs> and just go, and Dylan just looks embarrassed because uh, what did that? What did that head shaking mean, though? What, did, what was the? What does that mean? Was she enjoying it? Uh, no, it meant that she. I think. I think she really didn't enjoy it. Okay. And then afterwards, they stopped around, and I think they bought us some drinks but i'm not even i think they were so felt so sorry for us it wasn't even alcoholic drinks i think it was like like would you like some sort of tea or some hot chocolate do you know what i mean <laughs> like like comforting do you want something comforting we're not going to celebrate with you but we might buy something comforting tell you where you're going wrong the whole festival was like that um, well, no, not the whole festival was like that in the early days of stand-up you'd often do open mic nights and you'd have a thing where you know, no one really ought to go to an open mic night, in a way, if you're an audience. Well, isn't a comedian. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you're not going to enjoy it, really. But, like, and you would quite understandably regularly have nights that got pulled, no one turned up. Or, but occasionally you'd have one where you would have three people turn up. And then there would be this sort of thing of, hey, guys, do you want the show to go ahead? And I always think, at that point, they can't say no... If they're like, if they look around and think we're the only ones here, they can't say no because it makes them look bad. It's like, oh no, I'm not doing this. And so they always go, yeah, no, go for it. Yeah, it'll be fun. We're, we're the only ones in the audience. And what they don't know is it won't be fun, and they essentially have to do all the heavy lifting. 
for like desperate it's, comedians. It's going to be comedians that don't have enough stage. Um, that, I mean, we haven't got. It's not going to be like a, a lineup of Mike Bubbins. Yeah, yeah, who can just like smash out a Vegas style performance in front of one person. <laughs> It's like, it's going to be a bunch of people that are scared, that are desperate not to have to do it, that are all going to come out and tailor-make an entire evening to the three people that have bothered to show up. Um, and one of them will be more up for it than the other two, and so the whole night will be about them. It, um, it's more of kind of like, I think if there's more people on stage than off, cancel. Absolutely. Just no, um, it just doesn't need to go ahead. It's fine. I always say, I always say, look, we're here now. We can all just have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But let's not, let's not do this. Let's not. Let's not put each other because, through this. Because it's, the tipping point is different. It's gone from uh, we're putting on a show for our audience to an individual asking another individual to entertain them for an evening. Yeah. You know, a stranger. Just saying, no, nah, uh, I'm here. You do it, and they sit in silence. And what? It's like it, that's a, it's an unfair balance. It becomes kind of like uh, servitude. Um, <laughs> but but my point was, one day me and Rob went out, and we flyered from uh, midday right the way through. And I don't, I've never really mastered flyering. I guess you fly at all parts of the day but i guess really the hour before your show is like the best time to do it because it's people making last minute decisions but we fly it all day that day um and um uh you know we waited backstage and we just thought well we must get an audience today this is what every single show i did in edinburgh was like up until 2009 uh, and even that year one of my shows was a sellout, and the other one we cancelled 50% of the run. Um, because no one showed up. And when they did show up, it was three people and a reviewer. It was just like, it was just like... So Edinburgh's really... Edinburgh, if you're a young comedian and you're kind of like either starting Edinburgh or just about to get into Edinburgh, I, I'm really grateful that I had no audiences for the first 10 years of my career because when I did get audiences, I was so fucking grateful. And I think some people that get audiences right for, or get success right from the beginning, they don't realise that... that it, I mean, I've, every time I had a sellout audience since, I've just been very grateful. Um, and it hasn't been every time. <laughs> but... But... Um, but my point was we flyered all day and we didn't get... I think we got three people in. So and then the next, be the, day, same. the next day we were, like, absolutely broken-hearted. Um, and I don't think we were broken-hearted, but we were just like, well, what is the fucking point? We've been doing Edinburgh... It's 2004, so this was our third show that we'd done together. Uh, 2001, 2002, nothing 2003, couldn't afford it. 2004. Um... Third show we'd done together, and we were just like, well, well, I don't know how to get an audience. It's just, it doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. And because we'd been, it was halfway through the run, or maybe two-thirds through the run, we were exhausted. We were just like, well, what's the fucking point? And as a treat, 
I said, because it was just the two of us up there, we can have the day off. And we didn't do any flyering at all. And it was just like, worst case scenario, no one shows up and we can have the night off because this is bullshit. And uh, we came out on stage and it was sold out audience the day we didn't fly her. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and so I don't know why that is, but it might have been a delayed reaction from the day before where we'd fly it all day and everyone had, everyone that we flyered had plans that night, but went, do you know what though? We'll see it tomorrow. And then they all came to see it tomorrow. Or it might have been just the fact that we put off more people than uh, we, uh, we, you know, encourage. Uh, so I think that what's happening with Malta might be that. We really went above and beyond last week. Mm-hmm. The Maltese people have done what we've asked and they've all gone out and they've said, uh, yeah, guys, uh, you've got you've to really boost Nick and Nat up into the top 10. That's, that's the aim. And that's our aim for the next six weeks, isn't it? Just to get... Did we say six yeah. weeks or four weeks? It was to get into Malta's top ten. And I think what's happened here is if we've taken a step backwards, we've got a new message. Does that say where we were last week or is that just Natalie off the... Oh, I don't know if I've got this message. Yeah, it's uh, Natalie's um, off off topic again. Um, so, so I think... What may have happened is either the people of Malta are worse flyers than me and Rob and uh, they've, uh, they've put people off, or they're great flyers and the people of Malta are really up for it, but they were busy this Friday, but next Friday is the day that they're going to do it. Okay, well, for, well next week. So, so I think if next week in Malta, is... you, haven't, you haven't blown your chances. Just, just get listening. You're still our favourite listenership. And if anyone else feels like left out, tell your friends. Yeah, not that you feel left out about our show, and then get get yourselves up into the top the top ten, top sixty will do for now. But like top ten, I mean, it sounds needy to spend the first fifteen minutes of a podcast begging people to um, to listen to your show. But I've heard other podcasts, and that's pretty much standard, I think. <laughs> We're not asking you for money though, which a lot of them do. Which um... a lot of them do. We are literally just uh, just two guys. It's not even a podcast. It's a radio show that later becomes a podcast. Uh, just want to get that clear. If it were a podcast, we'd be raking it in, uh, especially from Malta. Yeah. Um, so uh, so that's that. That's fan club. Um, well, so, so Nathaniel, yeah. what, um, what have... I feel like I haven't seen... Um, I haven't seen much this week. Weirdly, um, I feel like I've, I've I've not really seen much this week. How about you? What have you been? I've seen a lot. I've seen quite a lot. Um, I saw a film I'd not seen. I'd, I saw 2003's Intolerable Cruelty by the Coen Brothers, which is one of the ones that I always find this that it's when it came out. I remember people saying it's not very good. Hang on not a minute. Very good. You saw. Intolerable cruelty for the first time. For the first time, yeah. This week. This week. Okay, right, yeah. Well, that's that's mind blowing to me. But go on. Um, I thought it was great as well. Or, or it's you know, it's it's very good, very enjoyable. I remember it being one of them ones that everyone was like, "Nah, it's rubbish. It's not. It's not a proper one." 
2003 would have come out. Okay, so Fargo was 96, Big Lebowski was 98. Mm-hmm. That's when they're sort of like at their height. But I think people were disappointed with Big Lebowski as well, though, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, initially when, when that came out. Oh, Brother Why Out There was 2000, was it, or 2001? Yeah, about then. About so this was then. their follow-up to Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. Um, I would say that it feels like different filmmakers. Well, it's kind of, it kind of makes sense. It's got a funny, like, um, origin where it was written by them in the, I think, mid to late 90s, or maybe even a bit earlier than that. And they wrote it as a script that they sold to Universal as essentially just an earner. Um, they had no real... I think they requested, like, a screenplay, because they were hot screenwriters. Wrote them a screenplay, and then um, uh, it sort of floated around Universal and no one really picked it up. And it was picked up by Ron Howard's producer, Brian Grazer, and he got hold of it read it and went, oh, I really like this. This is great. But I guess he was a bit like, it's not really a Ron Howard film, though. So I'll try and find another director and set it up. So it's all kind of, um, it's all kind of ready to go. Everyone's, uh, he gets like a star attached and it's all ready to go and he needs to find a director for it. So, he's, he, so, but, so, so but hang on. So it's George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah. And Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and they, um, well, Billy Bob Thornton's barely in it, really. It's it's kind of like a cameo, almost. Because I saw this at the cinema, and, uh, and I think it was followed up by Lady Killers, or it was Lady Killers first and then this, or was this then Lady Killers? Yeah, it sort of seems weird. When I was looking at it, I was trying to, uh, um, I was sort of surprised I hadn't seen it, but I think perhaps I hadn't seen it because I'd heard it wasn't very good. It was, but it feels like it was, it, it doesn't feel like, it feels sort of mainstream. It yeah. feels like, it doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers film in the sense no. that they take a thriller, uh, but they set it in Minnesota in the snow. The lead is a female cop. She's pregnant and it's a comedy, mm. you know, like where you go, oh, wow. So it's, it is, it's a thriller. It works as sort of like a whodunit thriller mystery, like, you know, Fargo not a whodunit, but it works as sort of like this mystery film. But they treat it like it's a comedy, and so it falls somewhere between. Do you know what I mean? Or they've got Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which yeah. is just sort of like a, a retelling of uh, Homer's Odyssey, uh, but it's done uh, in, like, 1920s with um, with bluegrass music. It's kind of like... So the Coen brothers, you know, will take, like, genres of films that either haven't been done in ages, which was a remake of Sullivan's Travels, wasn't it? Or it was inspired by Sullivan's Travels? Inspired by... I think it's because the movie he's going to make in that is called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Right, right. Um, but so they'll take, like, odd references and they'll kind of, like, go, oh, how about this? Or, like, with Hudsucker Proxy, they'll take kind of, like, a 19... You know, 30s, 40s screwball comedy, and then they'll update it, and everyone will go, Well, what the fuck is this? You know, mm. it's the year after Jurassic Park. Why are you making films like this anymore? Um, so, so the so when Intolerable Cruelty came out, it's like we're making a George Clooney romantic comedy, but it's called Intolerable Cruelty. I saw it in the cinema, and I was like, Yeah, it's like, um, uh, and I know that Lady Killers came out the next year, and then. Their mum died about that time. And I know that Lady Killers was originally done for Barry Sonnenfeld, who I think 
was the he directed Men in Black and Adam's Family, but I think he was the cinematographer on Barton Fink and uh, Blood Sim Miller's Crossing, Miller's Crossing, and maybe Blood Simple and all the other stuff. But uh, Barry Sonfield was their DOP, and then he went on to be like a director in his own right. So I think they wrote Lady Killers for that. But when their mum died, they were just like, "We'll direct it." And I think that there was a little period there where they were kind of like, the way the Coen brothers work is they write five scripts at a time and then they put them in a drawer and then they write another load of scripts and then they take the ones out of the drawer and then they rewrite them. So they've always got like five scripts on the go at any one time. And so it's not like, it's good to go. Um, but I know nothing of Intolerable Cruelty. So Nathaniel, continue. Um, but very much like you were saying, it's um, it's an odd project for them, and I wonder if I would have enjoyed it had I watched it when it came out. Um, because of those reasons, it's like a very different kind of film for them. But so what happened was, gets hold of it. Brian Grazer, Ron Howard's producer, gets hold of the script. It's not it's not going to be a Ron Howard film. It's not his kind of thing. So they're like looking. He's going, who who can direct it? And he's like, oh right, well the answer's right in front of me. I'll ring up the Cohen brothers and see if they'll come and direct it. So they call them in for a meeting. They come in for a meeting and say, oh, yeah, we've got this uh, project. And they kind of go, well, we don't really do studio projects. They take the meeting because it's sort of polite and they go, we're not, you know, we don't really do. That's um, what it is, though, isn't it? It's a studio yeah. film. It's, yeah. You know, whereas all big... of their other films are low, not necessarily low budget, but lower budget indie films where basically they can be as fucking weird as they... They're always good. They're, they're fu- they can be fucking weird, but they're always good. And and with Intolerable Cruelty, it's a studio film, so don't be weird. Yeah. You know, and so because it's not weird, it's sort of like not really um, up to their gold standard. I haven't seen it, I haven't wanted to see it since. And, I, you know, I just, I remember not liking it. Um, I'm not enjoying it, not enjoying it. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> For first, if, if, if this is the first time you're listening to the show, uh, we're not doing it wrong, this is how it works. This is how it is. Um... <laughs> And then, uh, <laughs> then it's a, it's a so we've got this it's guys, what is it? And they say, oh, it's, uh, as well, actually, it's uh, lucky for you, we've got one of your old scripts that we'd like you to do, Intolerable Cruelty. And uh, they're like, ah, oh, bit mainstream, isn't it? Bit mainstream for us. And Brian Gray's is like, you wrote it. How <laughs> could it be too mainstream? And he goes, it's perfect. And they're like, oh, I don't know, like... I don't know if it's it's what we really want to do. We kind of get things set. I'm like the same. It's like we kind of do things independent. And if you want to do a big studio movie, um, and they go, well, it's it's like a go project. You're basically being given a a mainstream movie that that Ron Howard's producer is like. This is like a hit movie, right? Like this is this and will this give is... you the kudos to make loads more movies. Why Another don't you cat... want to make this? Are the cast already attached? Well, that's it. It's like, it's like, um, and we've got like, it's like at the time ago, we've got a star attached. So who was like, the star? It's the go. And they say, all oh, right, well, who's the star? Yeah, but... And they go, Clooney. They go, George Clooney. And they go, oh, we like him. And so it's, it's just, kind of... we've literally just worked with him. Yeah. And they go, oh no, we love George Clooney. And so like, um, Brian Grazer is, is selling them to try and make this movie, which to him, who makes Ron Howard movies, is like, but why would you not want to make a big hit studio movie that's a go project? Um, but it's because they've got their sensibilities are entirely the opposite. Even though what they're making 
is a film that they wrote. And then it's that. They, that's, that's how they turn around and do it. They go, I guess it is our sensibility because we wrote it. So it's them doing a mainstream kind of romantic comedy. And it feels like it's half kind of regular rom-com and half Coen Brothers film. It's really, I found it really satisfying. Really enjoyed it. Really funny. I think, I think that's interesting. I mean, I would have assumed that they would have worked with him on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then they'd have developed a project specifically for George Clooney. And then they'd have gone, let's just try our hand, like in a quirky kind of way, let's try our hand at doing like what a Coen Brothers mainstream movie would be. But if, <laughs> yeah, interesting. I do find it, I do find it, um, I haven't watched it through those eyes. All I remember is absolute like, I, huh, so how did it all work? I probably became first aware of Coen Brothers with Raising Arizona. I think Channel 4 showed it in the early 90s. Maybe it was part of a Nicolas Cage season, including Red Rock West. <laughs> um, it's difficult to say, Red Rock West. That's an incredible film. Great film. And then... I, 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 I was never really into Barton Finkel Miller's Crossing. So I don't know what was, what was, what else did they make around then before Hudsucker Proxy? Mm. Well, I, like certainly Channel 4 used to show Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, uh, Raising Arizona. Laid, I like their comedies. I think they're really funny. And I guess all of their films are slightly funny, but Miller's Crossing was always kind of like, oh, it's a, Miller's Crossing. Ah, uh, oh, so should we talk about the Coen brothers then? So the Coen brothers, um, they started out um, as, well, Joel Cohen started out as a sound editor. So, so Joel Cohen did the sound editing on Sam Raimi's Evil Dead um, in 1980, whenever that was made. Um, have we talked about this before? I was uh, talking to someone about The Shining yesterday. And the poster of The Shining has the Stephen... Uh, the poster of Evil Dead has the quote, the most ferociously original horror movie of the year. And Evil Dead came out the same year as The Shining. <laughs> and it's kind of like... And I only know it from the Evil Dead point of view, which is it, it really boosted Evil Dead's popularity at the time. Like, you know, no one was going to go and see this indie horror movie. And then Stephen Quing, uh, Stephen Quing, Stephen King endorsed it on their poster uh, with a big poster quote saying the most ferociously original horror movie of the oh. year. And then everyone went to see Evil Dead. And it was like, you know, now Sam Raimi's like a top director. But now, 40 years later, 41 years later, he's a top director. Um, but when you look at it in the context, The Evil Dead came out the same year as The Shining. Stephen King hated The Shining. It can only be a public sort of um, neg at, at Stanley Kubrick, right? When he goes, he's it's shining. It's cost millions to make. He's, he spent a year filming it, or two years, 18 months or whatever it was, filming it. Um, and these guys have basically got $40,000 or something and made uh, uh, a film in, like, a few weekends. And Stephen King, which one are you going to endorse? And he goes, Evil Dead. Uh, and I hope, it, I hope it blows Stanley Kubrick's Shining out <laughs> of the water. You I mean, when you look at it in hindsight, you go, wow, that's crazy. Um, so when they did... Uh, so Blood Simple, if you watch Blood Simple, that is the Coen Brothers' first film, and that's kind of like a thriller 
Um, uh, but again, it's got these funny moments in it. But it's a thriller that is shot almost, you know, very much the same way as Evil Dead, where they have, like, loads of handheld stuff and there's the camera's really low. There's a bit when he's on his front lawn, isn't there, and then the camera's really low and it speeds across the front lawn towards the guy. And there's a bit... It's just some really funny moments in it. Uh, before Evil Dead 2 but that are very much Sam Raimi-inspired. Sam Raimi feels like the lesser cousin of the Coen brothers. Mm. But at the time, he was... Or like the like Sam Raimi always aspired to be mainstream. He was a big Three Stooges fan, and him and Bruce Campbell and Rob Tuppert, they all wanted to basically make live-action Three Stooges movies. And they, um, the way that they funded Evil Dead was they went around loads of dentists, and they did like a a chart of what was popular in cinemas and drive-in movie theatres. And they went like, well, horror is big. So even though our sensibilities are in comedy, let's make a horror movie uh, and we'll get investors and then we'll get all of their money back because we can just sell this horror movie. And then they made Evil Dead because statistically horror films were kind of like, you know, you could make them cheap and you could make loads of money back. But Sam Raimi always aspired to be kind of like the guy that's making these big budget sort of like screwball-y uh, 1950s inspired sort of like Spider-Man movies. Um, and that's what he went on to do. The Coen brothers sort of like learned how to make films off of Sam Raimi. And when you look at the first few, Raising Arizona, exactly. It's like a br- screwball comedy, very broad, but it's filmed as if it's an Evil Dead film where the camera's like all over the place. Um... And then they sort of grew up a bit and they made Barton Fink. I think I'm getting this right. They did Barton Fink, then they did Miller's Crossing. And then I think... I feel like I'm missing one out. So do I. Uh, Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe that is it. And, and then, then it's Hudsucker Proxy. Hudsucker Proxy was this huge budget 1950s screwball comedy starring Paul Newman... Uh, Tim Robbins, who was coming straight off of Bob Roberts, and he was like the big guy in town. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Jennifer Jennifer Jason Leigh. And um, it was produced by Joel Silver, who'd just come off like the Lethal Weapons and the Diehards. He was like this guy that made these, like Demolition Man, Wham! That's like approximately 94, was it? And Demolition Man was 93. Joel Silver was making these huge, mega budget Mel Gibson, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Seagal, Van Dyke. That's what he made. And he made like this romantic screwball comedy Coen Brothers movie. Um, and I think it's by, not by, not hands down by far, but like by a nose, I think it's their best film. It's certainly mm. my favourite. I eke it out over the years because I don't want to overwatch it, but I love it. Uh, it's great for evenings, wet Sunday afternoons. It's just like, it's just, I, I love Hudson. I watched Proxy. it over Christmas this year, and it's a kind of Christmassy film, so all set throughout December. And yeah, it's, and it's it leads up to good, New Year, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's a good sort of very sort of feel good. It's a good sort of film to watch around that time anyway. It's got all the kind of nice moments like that. But it's sort of like magical. uh, Is it? It's not magical realism, is it? But it's like it's like a fairy tale, and it's almost within the same. It's in the same bracket as something like Edward Scissorhands. Yes, where it's it's kind of like 
Yeah, it's it's absolutely fuck. It's beautiful. It's mm. funny. It's um, it's probably got I, something as well of the uh, like very Frank Capra. It's a Wonderful Life in that way, where you have like oh, a sort of magic element put into what's essentially got, quite serious. It's, it's got angels in it. It's mm. like, and it's it's about heaven and hell fighting over like a little bit that comes into it later on. It's like heaven and hell fighting over the soul of a man. It's like. It's absolutely Frank Capra. It's absolutely James Stewart. It's uh, it makes my heart sore in a way that a lot of the other Coen Brothers films, like Big Lebowski, one of the funniest films I've ever seen, but doesn't doesn't fill me with emotions. I laugh and then it's mm. over, and I go, I like that, and I can watch that over and over again. But it doesn't affect me emotionally. Whereas, you know, you you come out of Hot Second Proxy and you feel like you're a better person for watching it, you know. Um, we've got to listen to a song, but then we'll pick this back up, right? We've up to, we're up to Hud Sucker Proxy. Yeah. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back. Are we back? We're back. So we were talking about Hud Sucker Proxy. Um... Uh, the thing about Hudsucker Proxy was it was written by Coen Brothers and Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, so Sam Raimi's film, he made Evil Dead, and then after Evil Dead, he cashed in his you know, popularity chips. They said, what do you want to make? And he said, I want to make a 1950s screwball comedy called Crime Wave. And they made this film called Crime Wave, and that was written by... The Coen Brothers. So I don't know what year that was, but I think it was either after Blood Simple, but before they... It was kind of... I think it came out in 1984. 85. was Crime Wave, and Evil Dead 2 was 86. So the reason Evil Dead 2 came about was because Evil Dead was such a huge mega hit, and Sam Raymond was like, I can do anything! And so you made Crime Wave, which is awful. There are some bits in it that are amazing. We've talked about this before, I'm sure. There are some bits in it that are amazing. But as a whole film, it really is an annoying film. Um, and uh, and then it was such a bad, massive flop that Sam Raimi was forced to make Evil Dead 2. But when he made Evil Dead 2, he was just like, I, w- I want to make comedies. So he made Evil Dead 2 basically a comedy. Um, but... Um, so Crime Wave was set... Uh, uh, the prison in Crime Wave is called Hudsucker Institute, I think. Uh, it's definitely Hudsucker. And um, uh, I'm just sort of watching the notes get filled in one by one, and it's really <laughs> distracting. Um, so, so Crime Wave was written by... It's a, it's a Sam Raimi film, but it was written by the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi. Um, and then... Uh, because they sort of like owned this idea, I think they had like this shared universe idea of like this place called Hudsucker. So when they they had this script for the Hudsucker Proxy, which is I guess a Coen Brothers sort of screwball comedy, not a Sam Raimi screwball comedy. So I guess maybe if they'd have swapped projects, Crime Wave might have come across as more of a hmm. more of a 
Coney Brothers. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like who who directed what? I think that they all that they all wrote both of the films. Yeah. And on the one hand, you've got this very classic feeling. Um, I mean, it feels like it could have been made in the fifties. It's that it, it doesn't. It's obviously very modern, and they use modern techniques. But in terms of its heart, it feels like very much like a fifties film, whereas. Uh, Crime Waves feels like a ninety, like an eighties movie. It feels like, I mean, I think that, he, that Sam Raimi and the Coen Brothers were obsessed with Looney Tunes cartoons, and I know Nicolas Cage based his whole performance in Raising Arizona on Wiley e. Coyote. Right, makes a lot. He was like that. He goes, that look that he gives the camera just before he falls off the cliff is kind of like what he based his entire performance on, right? <laughs> and you go, oh yeah, 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 I can see that. So they had this sort of shared universe. The thing, right, I'm not going to get there yet, but then they made... Um, uh, uh, Hudson Proxy was a massive flop. I think it's because it was their biggest budget and it was Joel Silver and they were expecting huge things. But it was, uh, I think it was Universal and it was like this big flop. And so they went back to doing... Father. So what... So, so where's this list? So they did. Um, so, you, have you gone backwards or what? I mean, you've just. This is just a random list of films. No, it's Fargo next, isn't it? Fargo after Hatsaka Proxy. Uh, Far- oh, I see. Fargo. Big Lebowski. Yes. Yeah, so Hatsaka Proxy. Yeah, but so um, going back, Nat, to Lee, was there something in between? Barton Fink. Miller's Crossing and Fargo. I mean, this is literally, this is what people come to the show for, Malta. It's uh, it's two guys, <laughs> two guys refusing to personally use IMDb, but then getting their, getting their producer to look stuff up to fact check them live on it. It's just people, it's just two guys remembering things <laughs> that, that they've definitely covered in an earlier episode. Um, okay, we got it. Raisin Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. Oh, no, that's it. Was it that way round? That's interesting. Right, okay. I would have definitely thought it was Barton Fink and then Miller's Crossing. I guess Raisin Arizona is the more... Yeah, I would. But I guess Raisin Arizona is the one you think of being like a proper funny, funny comedy, followed by serious. Yeah. Followed by... Well, what's Barton Fink? I think it's It's a comedy. comedy. It's sort of like a... Last time I saw it, which must have been about 10 years ago, it felt like very much like a drama with this bonkers ending. And you kind of like go, okay, sure. Miller's Crossing has a cameo from Sam Raimi. Um, Hudsucker Proxy has a cameo from Sam Raimi. Um, but we're not getting into the juicy bit yet. And then you've got Fargo... So Hudson Proxy was their biggest flop. Then they did Fargo. Then they did Big Lebowski. Great. But I don't think it got critically well received. But not when it came naked out. because Man. everyone loved Far- Fargo so much. Was such a kind of got yeah. Oscars and got you know. So they made Fargo, and then Sam Raimi made a simple plan, which was it was kind of like a less quirky, non-funny, straight. It was based on a book as well, but it was kind of like Sam Raimi's. I mean, they're not... I don't feel like they're in competition. I feel like they are very much like... Um, what do you call it? Like a, a, a group of actors. They're like a troupe. Yeah. Well, they came up together, don't they? So they're obviously all friends, and I guess they're... 
if they're at all kind of um, in competition, it's a sort of friendly competition. It's more like kind of, we're doing, you know, I guess it's just exciting for them to be pals who are both making movies at the same time and coming up together. Yeah, because like Frances McDormand, uh, who went on to do Fargo, was the, the lead actress in uh, Darkman. Mm. Um, and uh, no, and that's where it ends. Um, but <laughs> I'm trying to think what was Holly Hunter in? Holly Hunter was in Raising Arizona, yeah. Um, so they've kind of like, um, and I think Holly Hunter was originally meant to be, um, the Bob, is it Bubba Joe in Evil Dead 2? Oh, really? Um, and for some reason, and not because she's too good, but for some reason she didn't do Evil Dead 2. But, like, they were, like, sharing the same cast at the time. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's kind of, like, this big um, uh, crossover thing. So, uh, didn't see The Naked Man. That is the film... Uh, that was that was directed by Ethan Cohen, specifically. I can't remember that. And I think it starred Michael Rappaport as a guy with tattoos all over him and he became a wrestler. I remember I remember the um, Naked Man is a 1998 comedy uh, film produced by Naked Man Productions, directed by J. Todd Anderson oh. and co-written by Anderson and Ethan Cohen. Right, OK, so he didn't direct it. Um, and who's it starred? Does it star Michael Rappaport? The, the, the front cover of it, I think, was Michael Rappaport covered in tattoos um, jumping in a uh, wrestling ring. It's passed me by. From what I remember, I uh, not only did yeah Michael Rappaport. Um, uh, not only did it pass you by, but I passed it by in blockbuster video. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> then there was uh, right. Then there was Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Great. Then there was the man who wasn't there. Yes. Billy Bob Thornton, black and white. Yes, UFOs? That was, well, it was sort of, like, connected to UFOs. So, right, OK, so the man who wasn't there, that, to me, was the disappointing The Big Lebowski. That was when it was just kind of like, I love these guys, what's next? And then the man who wasn't there was kind of like, oh, what's this? Um, and I never really connected with that. So. I guess what it's trying to do is a sort of genre mashup that's doing a sort of 50s noir film with a 50s B-movie, Flying Saucer movie. The Flying, Saucers, the Flying Saucer stuff is kind of like... Um, it's sort of like... It's just lip service, though, isn't it? It's mm. kind of aesthetically they're using it, and it's like they're nodding towards it, but it's not really anything to do with Flying Saucers. It doesn't really... You could cut that out, and it wouldn't affect the plot. It's not... Yeah. They don't go, oh, my God, there's flying saucers that are... And then it turns out to be something else. It's like, literally, they just use imagery, don't they? Mm, I think you're right. I, th I feel like it's kind of... It's just like an aesthetic thing, and you're kind of like... Superficial. Um, but um, I, uh, Billy Bob Thornton was great in it. Um, I, don't, I just don't... I just don't remember... I mean, I completely forgot about it. And then you get Intolerable Cruelty, Lady Killers, Parish Attempt. They were going through, like, a weird phase. Mm. And perhaps, um, perhaps even after Man Who Wasn't There, which is probably a risky black-and-white movie, which I suspect didn't make a lot of money. I think it did the Oscars, though, right? Oh, did it? 
Maybe, maybe so. Maybe he didn't win loads, but I think by that point they were kind of like... Darlings. I think Man, Manu wasn't there. Yeah, they were darlings after Fargo. Big Lebowski was kind of like, what the fuck is this? And then with Oh Brother, Where Art There, again, they were just like, yeah, we love you again. And they re, they reinvented George Clooney, basically, after Batman and Robin. Mm. Um, and he'd done Three Kings by then. but um, Or maybe it was around the same time. Maybe it was just after. But, like, so he was kind of, like, reinventing himself from here. And also being shown he could do, like... He was really good at comedy, and he could do that kind of sort of square-jawed sort of hero, but who's also, you know, in in, in the Bruce Campbell mould, almost. He could do square-jawed hero, who's also sort of funny, a bit slapstick. George, because George Clooney now, it's a miracle that George Clooney now exists, because Mm. he did, he was... In Return of the... Revenge, Return of the Killer Tomatoes, (laughs) ER... And then from ER, he did from Dust Till Dawn. Then he was Batman in the in the film that basically ended everyone's careers, <laughs> uh, including Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he never really had like a proper legitimate hit after that. And then, um, except for Terminator Three. And then, um, and then, and then he worked with the Coen Brothers, and that was kind of like the regeneration of who he was as a. As a movie star now. Um, so then you get Lady Kids, Spanish, saying, No Control Men, great film. Um, Burn After Reading, uh, yeah, minor. I mean, I don't love it. No. Um, I, would, I would lump that in with um, Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers, really. Serious Man. Um, Watch that again this week. Um, it's a lot of fun, actually. I think it's, it's, I th- Yeah, go on. I think it was one of those things where I can't remember whether I was reluctant to see it because it was like there's no there's no famous people in it, but it is. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun when you watch it. I think I think it's really good. It's one of those films that's sort of like set in a day, isn't it? Uh, no, no, it isn't. No, it's um, it's set over probably a, a week or so. I think it's, right. it's set so, over two it's... weeks. Two weeks, in fact. Right. So it's got like this. Um... But that's part of the plot, isn't it? It's about yeah. a guy that's having a really bad sort of fortnight, and then yeah. And I always find those films sort of like diverting, but like I don't always find those films diverting. But it's that it's like I tend to kind of they don't feel sort of not that a film has to be epic, but you know what I mean. They feel almost like disposable. It's like you go, oh, Martin Scorsese, he did Goodfellas, and then he also did After Hours. And After Hours just feels like a different filmmaker and it's kind of, like, completely disposable. You go, yeah, it's interesting and a kind of, like, he also made this film kind of way, but it's not one of his classics, you know? I like yeah, people, After Hours, but I know what people you mean. Love, I, I know people love After Hours. I, I just... It's set in one night. The whole thing happens. You know, he, he leaves work and then, at the, then he goes back to work in the morning, kind of. No spoilers. Watch After Hours. Write in to tell us what you th- about, thought about it. Um, I'm looking forward to I've never seen Last Temptation of Christ, so I'm going to watch that over Easter. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> going to have a Jesus triple bill. Going to watch Last Temptation of Christ uh, and Passion of the Christ. <laughs> and if never, seen can... that, never seen that. No, I, mean, I watched Last Temptation of Christ last Easter. And then it's it all went... I like it, but it's... it's um... It's one of those films, I don't know why I'm really watching this. What I actually want to watch 
is like a bank holiday movie. But it like feels ben, like Ben, like Ben Hur or Ten Commandments or something. <laughs> no, like what I think is like um, the Italian the Bible. job is a, a, a bank holiday movie. You want to watch something right. fun because it's like feels like oh, it's sort of like a public holiday. It's, it's, it's the temptation of Christ. Not fun. It's not fun. No, no. Oh fuck sticks. Oh, I was expecting it to be a real romp. <laughs> I was expecting Harvey Keitel as Judas to get his knob out. Uh, I won't spoil the ending, but something happens to Jesus at the end, and it's a bit depressing. Oh no, that's all I need. Not at Easter. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't gorge himself on uh, chocolate eggs and get get no. fat, does he? It really isn't the spirit of Easter at all. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. So the thing about that I always find really interesting to wrap this up. So then, serious man, true grit, sure, gambit. What? I couldn't even remember that they made Gambit. I remember that. Isn't Gambit the one with... I get Gambit and Mordecai mixed up, but isn't Gambit the one with Alan Rickman, Hugh Grant... No, not Hugh Grant, Colin Firth. Um, Is it Cameron Diaz? Cameron Diaz? Who's the star of Gambit? Uma Thurman. No, not seen that. Not seen that. Oh, and then they did Hail Caesar as well, which is kind of like... Um, who's the guy? Uh, Alden Ehrenreich is brilliant in it. And then you go, he's going to be Han Solo. And you go, great. Let him. He doesn't know anything like. It was Cameron Diaz. It's like Alden Ehrenreich. He doesn't know anything like Harrison Ford, but by all means, let him play Han Solo. He's great. He does this really cool thing on a horse. Uh, oh, you remember? Uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> Gambit, starring Stanley Tukey. Oh, uh, yeah. Tukey Tucci. Tucci? If you get his name wrong... <laughs> he if you say his very... name five times, it turns out... If you get his name wrong, he gets very tooky about it. Um, that's, that's just how I say it. That's just how I say it, Matt. Tucci. His name is Tucci. He's... <laughs> I've got a high five. Got a high five. Um, <laughs> so, um, right, so the thing about, um, about Coen Brothers and Sam Raimi is that... Um, uh, Bruce Campbell is, uh, if you put Bruce Campbell as your lead actor, it might not be a successful film, but it will be a cult classic to some degree. People will watch it just because of Bruce Campbell. And I think maybe, if you, but if you put Bruce Campbell as a cameo in your film, um, it will be box office poison. So... Crime Wave, Bruce Campbell was meant to be the lead, but he ended up being uh, a cameo or a lesser part, and uh, it suffered the consequence. He would have been a great lead in Crime Wave, but it didn't happen. Um, he was... Um, he had a cameo in Hudsucker Proxy. Again, they suffered the consequence, and it was it, it, a Paul Newman, a Paul Newman movie, produced by Joel Silver, directed by the Coen Brothers, a massive flop. Uh, he has a cameo in um, Intolerable Cruelty. Is he a dog trainer in Intolerable Cruelty? No, no, he... he's, he's a soap actor. He's a soap actor in Intolerable Cruelty and he's a dog trainer in Lady Killers. That's right. Back to back, Bruce Campbell. I, as a kid at university growing up who lived off IMDb, 
uh, and, uh, and and went on Bruce Campbell's IMDb page every day to find out he was making not only uh, two movies with the Coen brothers, but also from Dust Till Dawn 2, I was over the moon. Uh, and then to see those final films, I was just like, oh, what the fuck is this? Put him in it! Bruce, like before Ash vs. Evil Dead came out, the Coen brothers went on record to say that they have read a script for Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 4, and it's about Bruce Campbell fighting deadites at a petrol station, and they said it's one of the best scripts they'd ever read. And it never got made, and the Coen brothers are fans, Quentin Tarantino's a fan, Robert Rodriguez is a fan, you've got all of these indie makers, filmmakers, that are making low-budget films... Put Bruce Campbell as the lead in one of your films. Give him a chance. And then it was left up to Don Coscarelli to make him the lead in Bubba Hotep, which was an Oscar-worthy performance. Oh, I've gone off on one again now. The only one out of those that features Bruce Campbell that did very well was Fargo. And they use a old video clip of him in a soap opera um, on a TV while... Uh, William H. Macy's wife is tied up to a chair with a bag over her head, and on the TV is Bruce Campbell. Uh, but he didn't turn up for work. They just used an old clip of him from a TV show. So there you go. That's, um... Oh, again, another lovely chat that we've had, Nat, ruined by me losing my temper at the injustice of Bruce Campbell's career. Um, <laughs> we've got time for some fan mail, then we'll play a song, and then we'll bring our wonderful guest on. Um... All right, so, podcast, 68 in Malta, 203 in Estonia! Come on, Estonia! 203, tell your fucking friends. Uh, someone has written Fandabby, five stars. That doesn't... This is an iTunes review. That's an iTunes review, but that isn't, equated, that isn't like allocated to anyone. That's just... It just says no, squirty slart fart. No, but that's it says Fandabby, five stars, and then it's got the quote, and then it's got... So maybe that's what the title of the review, and then the review, and then yeah. is that what it is? Squirty Slartfart says, "So exciting, it made me do a poo." Oh, great, lovely. With fans like you, then, then I can Nathaniel. Trust you are both well. I enjoy your show every week. I noticed the documentary Drew, the man behind the poster, about the legendary poster artist Drew Struzan. Is on Sky at the moment. I think his work is great. A few questions, if you don't mind. I've seen that documentary. Uh, I actually bought it on DVD, and I am furious. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've seen that documentary. It's a great documentary. I love Drew Struzan, obviously. Um, uh, if you don't know who Drew Struzan is, Google him. Uh, he did some, if not all, of the very best Police Academy posters you grew up with. Um... What are your favourite movie posters? Uh, Police Academy uh, 3, 4 and then 5. Um, do you prefer UK quad or one-sheet poster format? How about you, Nat? What's your favourite movie poster? Um, ones that spring to mind are <laughs> things like Alien. I find that really great poster. With uh, the egg. Just the big egg. Uh, but it's weird, isn't it? Because the egg is cracking. Hmm. And there's light coming out of it, but that's not how they work in the movie. No, no, exactly. Um, exactly. What do you mean exactly? You haven't answered anything there. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't made anything clearer. 
But, but I like, I like that that's the first thing that springs to mind. But I was thinking about that yesterday. It said it has a crack with, like, a green ooze coming out of it. So it's not well, it's like... typical of, of what would happen in the movie, but it still gives you that idea. And it's still one that feels appropriate. It doesn't feel like people have gone in and changed it afterwards. It still feels like they've gone, that's it, that's the poster for Alien. I, it's become I agree. Kind of... I agree, but Alien has got such, like, a history with design... You know, they got H.R. Geiger. Did they get Mobius, or did they get someone that... I think so he was HR... as well, yeah. H.R. Geiger did all of the um, uh, uh, alien effects. Not just the alien, but the alien world and the alien spaceship and everything like that. So they got H.R. Geiger to do all of that. And then separately, they got another guy who did sort of like... I think he did, like, Heavy Metal magazine and all of that. He did all of, like, the um, terrestrial human... Uh, design, and then when you combine the two different design elements, it looks like they're from different planets because it's from mm. two different brains. You know that is genius. But then when it came to the marketing, uh, someone said, "Well, these aliens—they come out of an egg," and so someone has literally drawn like a green egg and put a crack in it, <laughs> like it's. <laughs> well, I guess Drew Struzan's The Thing poster is kind of like that, isn't it? It's just like a you know, a, got it on my a, wall a up here. Huge light coming out of a face, but it's not something that relates to anything in the movie. But it gives you this sort of impression of something that's like, uh, it, it, it still feels like the perfect poster for it. And yet yeah, it's not it's, something it's, that it's feels good. like it's... You don't, know, you don't know who it is, the thing, John Carpenter's the thing, you don't know who it is um, on the poster. It's just someone wearing a Parker anorak, but uh, there's a light emitting from its face and it's basically sums up everything that you need to know from the film without showing you... Any details from the film, uh, other than the fact that it's snow and someone's wearing a parka coat, and it encapsulates the film without giving you any details from the film. Mm. It's, it's great. I would say, also on top of that, uh, we, we don't have time for any more, but on top of that, I would say uh, the Back to the Future one is absolutely timeless. I think so as well, yeah. And the way it's sort of adapted for the other two is always quite satisfying as well. I really enjoyed the fact that they just added another person another on for person. each of them. Really satisfying. Uh, but um, but also, again, it doesn't really give you... It's not like a, a photo from something that happens in the film. It's literally, this is your film, this is your poster. It's like a classic poster. It's just like, there's your main guy, there's the vehicle, there's fire on the ground. It's like, I love the colours. I love... If you if you've if you've got like fifty quid or twenty quid or I don't know how much the books are, but just get yourself a Drew Struzan art book and you can spend hours just pouring through it. He did like later on he did the Harry Potter stuff and then everything got photoshopped. But by the time Marvel came along, everyone sort of like photoshopped it. But there is sort of like a movement. Every so often you get someone that's done sort of like a Drew Struzan esque poster. But people have lost the skill, and then the, the drawn posters aren't ever as good as the, yeah. the, they used to be. Anyway, let's play a song and get our guest on. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. 
Uh, we're back. We're back. Uh, we're back live in the studio. We're not live. It's pre-recorded. Uh, and we're not in the studio. I'm in my spare room. Nat's in his washroom. Uh, and we're joined now by one of my favourite comedians, uh, Zoe Lyons. Hello, Zoe. How you doing? Hi. I'm good. How are you? You all right? Um... I'm, yeah. No, no, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Today I'm fine. Today I'm fine. Uh, somebody told me today, somebody told me in the week that they were, this hasn't ever occurred to me before. Somebody told me in the week that they were um, an introverted extrovert. Oh, yes, I've, I'm aware of that combo. Or an extroverted introvert. And I've never thought about that. I know that I have therapy mm. and and a lot of the days... I can't get out of bed because I am so uh, washed over by bleakness and depression. Mm -hmm. And then I'll sit down and talk to my therapist. But just because I'm talking to someone, I feel great. And I'm just yeah. like, I, to be honest, I can't remember why I booked this appointment. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've just got myself a therapist. I live in Brighton. I think I'm the last one to do it. Um, <laughs> And uh, it's quite interesting. As a comedian with a therapist, you, I've, I've really am playing it for laughs. And I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware of that. But I think, well, sod it, I'm paying for it. She can damn well laugh. Yeah. And yeah. also, I think that's what you, that might be what therapy you need at the minute because yeah. not, you've not got an audience anymore. You've got, like, uh, everyone sat at home. They've not got anyone to perform to. Exactly. I have a therapist, and occasionally I say something funny, and I know it's funny, and he does a sort of the slightest kind of, like half acknowledgement. Why that. are you using humour in this situation? I have been consistently unfunny and gradually I've sort of like broken her down over like the however long I've been seeing her. <laughs> and so now I'll sort of like say a joke and I'll look and I'll be yeah. like, well, maybe I think it's come to, to, uh, it's come to the fact that maybe Belinda's not my target audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you just have to accept the fact that not everyone's going to like you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it'd be terrible if you went online afterwards and you found out uh, uh, She'd been reviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a like, zoom for me. that you didn't realise. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, okay, so Zoe, um, uh, we've known each other for a very long time. Um, am I remembering this incorrectly? But were you doing a show at the Pleasance Beside? Did you ever do a show at the Pleasance Beside in the courtyard? Or am yeah. I remembering Yes, this? yes. Yes, I think it was the besides. There were, it was a porter cabin that was very expensive. It was the one that looked like um, the uh, what's the place the the Palace of Solitude in Superman. I don't remember. Fortress. It. I'm getting that feeling from it. Is it? Is that like an eighty seater? Is that what we're looking at here? Yeah. It was, this is this is this is like this is. I, I think I did it after you did it, so not like directly after you, but years later. I think it was like I did mine in yes, 2011, yes, yes. and it was like the Fortress of Solitude where they had sort of like, it was a porter cabin, but on the outside they'd built it to be kind of like this very sort of like white spiky structure. And then years later they... Yes, they I do remember, yes. That was a nice venue, wasn't it? It was a nice venue, it was a nice venue, that, yeah. What show were you doing there? I can't remember which one it was. It would have been some ill-thought-out 60 minutes worth of rambling nonsense. Um, it could have been, been clown-busting. 
that classic. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You, did, you did a show called Clown Busting? Clown Busting, yeah. Yeah, I have no idea where that came from. I have no idea what that show was about. Um, and what else did I do in that? I did another one. I did a show called Miss Machismo. What was what was how when would when did you do your first Edinburgh? When was when did you? I think it was oh. two thousand and four. I think oh. yeah, about then. Your first solo show, two thousand four. Yeah, two thousand four in the cellar in uh, in the Pleasance. Um, it was a brutal experience. I got such small audiences. Um, every night I come out of my venue, I come up the steps. And, you know, after, after waiting for the three or four people to leave. Um, and then I would, by coming out of the steps and leaving my little room, I would find myself every night at the end of Simon Amstel's queue that was going full four <laughs> squares, like, round the, the courtyard. And it was just, it was such a trying time. Yeah, a very trying time. That's that, that first year when the when the when the when the tech goes, I'm gonna open the doors and let them in. You go, okay, and then you hear like two sets of feet, and then they go, they're in, and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. My god. yeah. I nearly, we were... I, I nearly tried to fake um, an angina attack to get off stage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, we, we, we uh, ran, randomly because we don't always talk about comedy, but we were talking about this in the first half, weren't we? And mm. I think that um, I think that those experiences uh, make me so much more grateful. Now, I think that you're not a real comedian unless you you've, have those. You've, you've, you've had those gigs. Yeah, um, which are very much tainted with shame, embarrassment, <laughs> horror, also, and fear. There's, no, there's nothing about comedy for them when you're doing those things. You're not, you're not sat behind a curtain hearing those two sets of feet coming in going, I cannot wait to entertain these people. <laughs> shame, shame is what it is. I yeah. think the thing that's about those sort of situations as well, it's that I, Edinburgh is a thing where you have reviewers come and you've got people that come in to see you. Yeah. And they see it. But if you're doing it and there's two or three other people in the audience, people go away and go, well, this apparently is the show. But I'm not, yeah. hearing, a lot, a lot, I'm not hearing a lot here. Not much atmosphere in this room. As if that's your fault then. It's yeah. Like, it's not really the show. What you're experiencing, this isn't what it's meant to be like. For no. No. Oh, gosh. It's so... It's such a weird thing, isn't it? It's such a strange thing. Doing comedy in places or in environments where it just, yeah, I mean. But I also, I, I, I not like being defensive or anything, but I also think like comedy is one of those things where um, it's almost like, maybe it's the standard of gigs that I've had, but it's almost like you can't review it unless it's a, a, a DVD or a recorded mm performance and then you can go well that's what i think of this recorded performance even like a tour show it's just kind of like i did uh, my last tour i just remembered um one of the best gigs i'm do I, which i recorded which i'm streaming in next month i'm plugging something um uh the third from last gig was um at leicester square theater and it was it was great right it was a nice big audience uh the show was as good as it's ever going to be Right. The next gig was um, a week later, and I toured it. I've done it like seventy times by this point. I've done the tour, first half of the tour. The next week, I had to do two more gigs. I did um, Southampton, 
where there were drunk people. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, not late. I had to put the seats out myself or rearrange the seats because it was a music venue. And I was just like, you can't do this. And they were literally watching me move the seats and said, we've never seen an act move the seats before. And I was like, <laughs> well, you can't do it. There was like, a, it was like a, 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 120 seats or something like that it wasn't huge but there was like a 15 foot mosh pit that they'd put in and it's like no they got to be close to the so i moved yeah. it all there was drunk people i had to redo uh the, the 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 first 20 minutes of the second half of the show because drunk people disrupted it so i had to redo it and then the week after that there was a couple of people that um do lots of charity work that come to see loads of gigs and they live in exeter and they were like please come to exeter exeter wasn't on the list so i made them add exeter onto the list and when i got there um it was on a rainy friday night the venue was half full at most and the couple yeah. that wanted me to do it had diarrhea that night and so they weren't even <laughs> they weren't even there right <laughs> And you go, this is, so this is my, this is my proudest moment. This is the best show I've ever written. And, you know, it was a great tour. But the last three gigs were so wildly different from each other that you go, yeah. how do you review live how comedy? You, how do you oh. gauge what that is? Yeah. Yeah. It's very good of you to do a show based on the idea that two people in Exeter want to see it and go, well, I'll put on a gig there then. That is quite, that does seem quite needy, Nick. I'm a people person. I'd do anything for them cunts. So, <laughs> I, it, was, it was great. But, uh, oh. So I think those experiences that you never sort of get, get rid of are oh. the things that make you a comedian. Yeah. Especially those... Do you, miss, do you miss the fact... Would you have done Edinburgh this year had it gone ahead? Or? No. No. Uh, no, for many reasons. I've had quite an intense lockdown... And uh, various, uh, yeah, I, this wouldn't have been the year to make myself any more vulnerable. Uh, because Edinburgh is a bit like, you're all right when you're in your venue, but out of your venue, you're very much like a, a hermit crab that's left its shell behind. And you just sort of <laughs> scurry around waiting not to be eaten by something for a whole month. It's just, yeah. um, so no, I wouldn't have gone this year. Uh, I'm, I may go again. But I may not. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, I just got offered a gig in Tottenham. And my first thought was, that's miles away. I'm not doing that anymore. I, I that's think exactly... if I can't gig within sort of five miles, it would probably won't be happening anymore. I've, unless it was a tour. If I was doing new, if I was getting a tour together or a new show together, uh, like for previews, yeah. my, I would aim for my previews to be... Uh, London, yeah. and and smaller than that, North London, and smaller than that, I will book Look six flat. gigs yeah. at Pleasant Sislington, and then yeah. that is. And I, if I can walk there, and but I'm not going to go up to Nottingham and die on my ass with new material and then come back again. It's all got to be local. Yeah. And then if it's a tour, I've got a guy that drives me on tour who picks me up, forces me into the van, and then takes me to the tour, and forces me on. You know, it's like it's That's one good. of those things. And, and also with Edinburgh, having all that, I was thinking about this yesterday, just like, I would do another, I would obviously love to write another show, but I'm just thinking, but I don't want to go to Brooks Bar. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want, to, I don't want the nightlife. No. And I don't want like the hanging around with, um, 
my favourite Edinburgh was last the last Edinburgh we did, and it was because I did a show in the afternoon and another show in the evening. And yeah. the show in the afternoon was my solo show, and the evening show was a musical I did. And so I'd get to do it with other people. And I didn't have any downtime. It was always getting ready for the next show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's better almost, isn't it? I loved it. But like you say, when you don't have... When you've got your show done, it's just like, what the fuck am I meant to do now? Yeah. Walk 15 miles back to my rented accommodation. <laughs> <laughs> You're stranded, aren't you? And then you always want to go and see lots, and then you're actually not in the mood to see anything, because if you've had a bad show, you don't want to go and see a good show. You know what I mean? You're always just in the mm. wrong place at the wrong time. You're always sort of five minutes either side of yourself. It's just a very strange month. Um, um, I did two weeks. When did I go last time? Oh, not Obviously not last year, but the year before I did two weeks, and that was perfect. I really enjoyed that. That was really nice. Two weeks seemed fine. When I go for a month, I can't help thinking, it's a twelfth of a year. And that feels like a long time. And also, um, when you... I don't know why my thing is alerted like that. <laughs> when, um, when, you, when you do several years, you know, I get yeah. to the point where it's like, I've spent a year and a half in Edinburgh without ever living there properly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I spent more time living in Edinburgh than I have in Brighton, and I lived in Brighton. Yeah, yeah. A year, yeah, a year in Edinburgh, yeah, it would have been, yeah, it wouldn't for me, it's not that many times. But, yeah. but, so we just recently did uh, stand up and deliver, stand up and deliver, yeah, um, yeah, stand up and deliver, uh, <laughs> on uh, Channel Four for Stand Up to Cancer, um, and I didn't really know the lineup going into it, um, and then it kind of like. Uh, and then I looked at very late on. I looked at the list on who was doing it, and I don't really know any of uh, uh didn't know any of the others kind of like going in i sort of knew jason jason manford uh, by i think he'd been a guest on this show actually during lockdown but i didn't know him know him um uh, but I, I knew you and i just remember the first day i was very because we hadn't left our houses um no it was november we filmed yeah. or yeah or maybe late october we hadn't left our houses in a year and I was so nervous about doing it, and I'd forgotten how to do comedy, so I was like, who am I to teach people how to do comedy? And so you were the first person that walked in when I was there, and I was so relieved to see you. Uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and you made me feel so much better about doing it. Um, <laughs> you were like, how appalling she looks! <laughs> no, no, the opposite. I was so happy to be, I was so happy to be doing it with you. Um, so how did you, how did you find it, and how did it all come about? I found it very tricky. I did, I found it very tricky. Because, um, like, you hadn't, I hadn't gigged for ages and ages and ages, and I felt, and my overall feeling, as, as most comics have, m most of the time, was one of massive um, fraud <laughs> being committed by me, trying to teach somebody else to be a comedian, when I'd felt so... Um, uh, isolated from it, yeah, for want of a better word, for, for ages. So it was actually quite hard. I found it quite hard. And it wasn't the, it wasn't the I don't know, it wasn't the being seen as a mentor or being seen as a teacher. It was, it was not being seen as a fraud. <laughs> that, was, that was the <laughs> thing that I really struggled with. But um, I enjoyed it in the end. I did enjoy it in the end. Um, and I thought, I thought they did well. I, thought they did. I mean, you're the Baroness, come on. God, she was brilliant. I think, yeah, I've said this several times. I think that she would have done... I don't know if she'd have won, but I think that she was already at a level where she would have yeah. done well no matter what. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I feel like it's a little bit fraudulent to be able to say, we won. I feel like, she won. No, no, no. You, you <laughs> and I was there going... Yeah. Well, you I think got I, beautiful I, condiments together. You really were. You were... It was lovely. Really lovely. But, but when we did the very... Uh, when we did the... Because the way it works is we met on the first day. We didn't see each other for two weeks. And then we had yeah. to do the final night. Um, and, uh, and it was really... I was so nervous on that last night. Um, uh, you had to compare, <laughs> and I was just like, "Thank fuck, they haven't asked me." Because they, because on the day, they basically on the last day, we we're all in our dressing rooms with our uh, what do you call them, proteges, and uh, yes. and uh, and they kind of like casually the TV company, they casually kind of like say, "Oh yeah, so you got to go on stage and say some, just say some a couple of funny things, and then and you're like, what?" What? I know. I haven't, I, know. I haven't said a couple of funny things in ten months. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and 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 this isn't a gig. This is being filmed for TV. I don't want to fucking go on stage and say a couple of fucking funny things. That you know, they're the one that spent two weeks writing material. Well, I haven't written any fucking material. And then they said to you, "You've got to go up and compare a section." Yeah. And I was just like, yeah. Thank, "Fuck it, it's not me." <laughs> You went on and you absolutely fucking smashed it. That was absolutely, it was incredible. But it's that awful um, feeling. I know what you mean, though, when you're like, what? Do what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. In, I, I have not been very productive during lockdown. I haven't written very much at all. At all. Um, so it is weird when you are asked to just sort of go on the spotlight. Like that. I think people just assume that you're constantly churning it out. I was going to say that. Do you think that's TV people going, go on, do some of your, do some of your comedy now? Hits. Um, yeah, do some of your comedy now. It's like, you're already, it's like you're always doing it and all yeah. they need to do is shuffle you in front of a microphone yeah. and then you go, like, they've done five minutes and then they shuffle you off and then you're still doing busking, it in the corner of the room. It's not busking. It's just <laughs> you more involved. People always assume... It, I remember once... Um, I actually I turned down a corporate gig because I, I I did the right thing and asked the right questions, and uh, I said, "So how are you? How are you doing this?" I went, "Right, well, what, what we've got right. Um, we just thought it'd be like a fun day out for everybody, so we're having like lots of different things, um, but uh, so people will just be wandering in and out, and like on on one plinth we'll have like a musician, and then on another plinth we'll have." And I went, "Oh God, no." <laughs> No, there'll be no wandering in and out on a plinth. This all no, that will not work. I did a I did, I a, did a festival once in Rotterdam. Did you ever do the Rotterdam Comedy Festival? No. It, it, it was great fun. Rotterdam's an amazing city. But again, they did it like that. They were like, okay, sure, people will just buy tickets for the whole shows, and then they're going to just wander in and out. And I was like, oh god, that's so not well thought through. Oh, it was um, yeah, tricky. I, I just remembered I got asked to do a wedding. Um, where it was me and my guitarist and we were going to be in a field and there was going to be kind of like, um, sort of like old-fashioned, old-fashioned sort of like games like billiards over there in one corner of the field and over there it would be like uh, me singing songs with the guitarist and, uh, you know, there'll be sort of like finger nibble, you know, a finger buffet over it. And then I've just remembered it was my sister's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I'll turn that down. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, but it's I, I, one of the things that I was sort of like a bit apprehensive about doing the show uh, was um, a 
giving someone all of my tricks <laughs> and putting that on, putting that on, uh, or to expose yourself for how few tricks you actually have. Oh yeah, yeah, that was my problem. Yeah. But then also, it was it was kind of like uh, showing the general public how easy stand up is. But I think in actual facts, the opposite occurred, and it was like, oh, actually, I've never thought about my process before like this yeah. in a way that you've got to teach it it's second nature to i've got to do a show i'll go through the same things but in terms of teaching it to someone else um i'd never really thought about it like that yeah. and then when you when you realize actually it is quite a difficult thing i mean i, I don't know I, I think you can learn certain aspects of it but i think you can either do it or you can't and i know there's lots of classes you can do in stand-up comedy um and there's course it's a university degree university degree but you can either it's either in you or it's not isn't it it's, I, I think I, 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 bits and pieces you can learn but to be a performer, to be a stand up I think I think it's got to be slightly innate I thought it's a really interesting show to watch and I think it's one of the better examples of, even though it felt like a Channel 4 show that was edited to show mm -hmm. certain things and not others, I thought it, was a, I thought it showed what stand-up was and wasn't quite well. Mm, okay. It's this sort of, this isn't it. This is close to it, but it's not quite it. And yeah. this, this is it. And I thought you had um, Katie McGlynn and I, I, I remember on it you were saying, you're quite a funny person, and she was denying it. She wouldn't have it. Yeah. But it's just that, but in her own speaking, just in normal telling a story or chatting, you, I could feel that. I was thinking, yeah. you're quite funny. That's quite funny what you just said. Yeah. But she couldn't. Uh, she because she, she could never accept herself as being a funny person. It was yes. obviously harder for her to project it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's got. It's, but also. Yeah. Hanging on you to can, the bits of you that are, yeah, funny, that, yeah. But you can, but on, going from what you said, Zoe, you can sort of like, it, it, all of these little stages of kind of like where you, maybe not everyone can do it. But, uh, and when you get to the final hurdle, it's kind of like, do you enjoy, do you enjoy it? You might be able to do it, but do you actually like standing up on stage in the first place? You know, and yeah. if you don't, then you shouldn't. Do you know what I mean? It's like when I did my first gig, I was shit, but I enjoyed being on stage trying. Yeah. And that's what kept me going at first was like, oh, how I can get on stage. So how can I do it? But if you can do it, but you can't get up on stage, then that's kind of just as debilitating. Yeah. 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 I mean, I still get nervous getting on stage. I still get very nervous. Oh, me too. Yeah. Properly nervous, real questioningly nervous. Like, why on earth am I doing this? In fact, in fact, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and I'm probably overly sensitive to be. Hey, there's a, there's many factors that are going against me. I'm overly sensitive, <laughs> and I don't like late nights, so I'm really not cut out for this at all. <laughs> I think it goes against your self-preservation doesn't it it's almost the maddest thing you could do yeah is to go out there especially if you're not someone who has a massive uh sort of self-belief or something it's almost like testing this thing which could unravel you at every opportunity it'd be like well don't do that <laughs> like, and no one would say go yeah I'd keep doing that this thing that's sort of trying yeah. to show yourself off but yeah. 
you know, it's great if you win, but it's it's like um, there's a sort of uh, fragility to it. But unless I don't know, but like I think almost I think it shows you in a better light for feeling like that than it does if you you're super confident <laughs> because you are putting yourself out there in a sort of ridiculous way that people yeah, it, it will would do. make sense it would make sense that you should be nervous about that it's like yeah. i feel nervous but well, it should be mate you really should be this is, <laughs> this is uh, knowing you as i know you and the skills you've got you should be nervous <laughs> <laughs> i've had bad gigs and they will tear you to fucking shreds mate <laughs> uh, if you are anything other than 110 percent you haven't got a fucking chance, and I've been there. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, fucking hell. I mean, I get, I get incredibly, incre- I get incredibly nervous. It used to be, um, well, when you first start, you, there were so many, there were so many comedians in London, but not enough gigs, and so you would. Or maybe there were, or maybe there were so many gigs, but not enough comedians. There was, there was something. There was something where there was, it was. It, maybe it was potential to gig every night of the week, but in an empty pub. Yeah, yeah. Or there's not enough audience. That's the one. Yes. There wasn't enough audience. <laughs> and um, and you'd. I, I, but when I first started out, which was 2006, it was like um, you could do a gig, and you'd get really nervous for your gig, and you'd do your gig. But then your next gig would be two weeks later or a month later. And then anything you'd learnt from that first gig was out the window because you had to put all of your energy into building up enough strength and courage and whatever to just get back on stage again. So the learning curve was so slow or so shallow at that point because it was just about kind of like... Uh, getting nervous and waiting to go on stage and yeah. now i've got it yes. now i've got it and then it would be like a week i get nervous a week before a gig and then um and then in edinburgh i'd be kind of nervous all of the time my favorite moment would be the exact moment i got off stage because it'd be the longest moment it was the longest i had before i had to get on stage again yes um Yes, and and then it, and then it would be kind of. And now I think I got when I was on tour, and it was like becoming. It would be like I get nervous an hour before I get on stage, mm-hmm. and if you would give me, and I say it in the sh- in my show, but um, uh, but if you'd give me any excuse to not do it, you know, like yeah. a snow day, yeah, it would be yeah, like, yeah. or a global pandemic, it would mm-hmm. be like, oh, thank God, um, uh. But the moment I get on stage, or I forget all of that, and I enjoy it. Yeah, it's like, it, it is, it's waiting for the phone to ring, isn't it? So the motorway's been blocked. And you're like, oh, no, what a shame. I really won't find an alternative way to get there. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel now, Zoe, about the prospect of returning to stand-up? Or have you done gigs within lockdown points? Or? I've done Zoomy gigs. I've done Zoomy gigs, which at first I was quite resistant to, but then I thought I've got to do something because otherwise I am just... I mean, I've got to be really honest. When, when pandemic, when the lockdown, first lockdown happened, there was, I had a massive panic attack in co-op in Hove by the yogurts, but then I recovered <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> and then there was a bit of me that was like, I don't have to go anywhere. This is awesome. Um, and then when people started, like, within within minutes, you, you know, the, the, the usual characters sort of panicked and went, we have to find another way of performing. And I'm like, we kind of don't for a bit. Don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. we got a good thing, guys. We sort of 
don't. I mean, there was a bit of me that was like, if I'm going to go through a pandemic, I'd like to experience it properly and not try and just sort of pretend it's not there. I'd really want to, I want to have the full impact. And I really have, I mean, I'm living in a <laughs> I mean, it's all happened. It's all, it's, 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 it's brutal. But I mean, I've, I've lived this pandemic properly and yeah my, my driving force wasn't getting a zoom gig together for my local community it was just sort of uh, embracing the madness and uh, i've rolled with that um but i have so i have done a few zoom gigs uh i got offered a gig in um because <laughs> the comedians obviously here in brighton and i took it they've, they've booked some gigs in brighton and then they said would you like to do bath and i went no i really wouldn't thank you and if that means i can't do brighton then i can't do brighton either because um, I won't be travelling like I used to, because it actually made me miserable. I realised I was really miserable, really miserable. So I'll be, uh, I'll be, I'll be, there'll be a really a smaller orbit for a while. I'm quite happy. That's, with that. but that's exactly that's exactly how I felt. I felt like um, I was trying to keep up with everyone mm. and everything, and I was like, well, everyone's touring, so I guess I should tour. Uh, but it wasn't uh, in the early days when I first started. It would be like I want to do an album, so I'm going to do an album. I want to do Edinburgh, so I want to do Edinburgh. Yeah. And then it, there becomes a point in your career where it's like, well, everyone does Edinburgh, so I guess we do Edinburgh. And yeah. it's not necessarily about what you think, but it's about what's expected or what everyone else is doing. And it was like this weird thing where I just did it because I wanted it or I thought it was right. And then it was like, oh, we so when this came along and it was like, it was like, oh, actually, I'm just going to take this time to think about what it is that I actually want out of my career now. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than trying to keep up with everyone. And when the Zoom gig started, it was like, I tried a couple, not immediately, but quite, and I didn't particularly enjoy them. And I have done some that I enjoyed and I've done some that I haven't, but I haven't done loads. I've done maybe a handful, but there was a part of me that was at first or at the beginning of my career, I was like, you know, I had all of these firsts out of my year group of, uh, you know, I had my I had my own TV show and I was the first person to got like a, a Radio 1 special and all of this stuff. And I wanted to be, and then I got to this point and it was just like, um, I don't feel like I have to be the first person to save comedy by working out how to do it online. Yeah. yeah. And then I was just like, do you know what, I don't, even want to be the first person to get their show on sale for when this is all over. And it, and now I feel you lot get comedy all sorted. And when it's all up and running, because you know, yeah. I've had so many full starts with this tour that it was delayed, delayed, delayed. And then I canceled it because I couldn't handle the pressure of that hanging over me. Yeah. That you might have to tour in three weeks. And it's like, fuck, I've got to relearn the show. It was like that for a year. Yeah. Now it's just like, no, cancel it. And then when everything's up and running, I will, uh, write a show for that, and I'll join in with everyone else as and when. I don't need to be at the at the cutting edge or at the at the front. You know, I don't have to be a pioneer. I can just literally just like what? Okay, I'll just join in when I'm ready because that's yeah. what I want. Yeah, and make you that will ultimately make you happier as well. You know, yeah. Yeah. I don't miss the, um, the continued and endless sort of. I mean, I do this. To, we do it to ourselves, but the sort of. Uh, um, professional jealousies that sort of were uh, um, a, a crappy side dish to, you know, the, the main meal of your career. It was, it's, it's really tiring. It's really tiring. 
And um, I think, yeah, the last year has sort of taught me, again, like you, just do what, do what you want to do at the end. You know, I'm, I'm going to be 50 this year, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm thinking about not doing it eventually, you know, but um, it's... It's uh, it's nice to be able to just go. That doesn't make me happy, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but yeah, and also taking a moment to sort of like go, what am I? Do- yeah, what am I doing? What are the, you know? I was I before the pandemic, I was kind of like just incredibly um, unhappy, not with my career, but with what I was doing and the way I was trying to. You just like go, oh, no, it's nice to have a moment to kind of like take a step back and go, what? You're only on this planet for a certain amount of years. And it's kind of like you can spend your whole time, uh, you know, and I at the beginning of my career, before I took off. Uh, to, to, um, <laughs> I'm talking like it wasn't like a stratospheric rise or anything, but like, <laughs> but within my, but before, stratospheric. <laughs> but, but, but in, in a way, the 10 years of doing Edinburgh without an audience were the happiest years of my life. Mm. And, and that first Edinburgh, when I didn't have any flyers, uh, and I started selling out and I couldn't work out why they were turning up. That was the best. That was. Uh, that would be the been end seen. of the movie, wouldn't it? That would be the yeah. end of the movie. You'd just get that. Yeah. And then um, you've got to trudge along and go, oh, God, I've got to crank out another show now. And it's just kind of like. And I, 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 I've never felt like that. But, um, but, but those feelings have never been beaten. And so there's a point in the beginning of your career where you go, this is wonderful. But then you've kind of done that. And then you get sort of like sucked into the tornado where it's like, no, and then and you, mm. you, you're, you're forced to sort of like compete. Mm. And then it's like, I don't want to. I've, I've never wanted to compete. I don't feel like I'm competitive. And even when we did this fucking stand up deliver thing, it was, um, it was kind of like, I just want her to have like five minutes that she's not ashamed of, you know? Mm. Um, so I just, I think that having this, this time, you kind of like go, oh my God, I've been living someone else's dr- dreams mm. or someone else's, uh, or different version of my, uh, of me's life. Mm-hmm. And actually, what is it that I want? And then you can kind of like go, oh yeah, I just want to slow down a little bit. Even if it's just for this, this period of time. Yeah. We're saying this, Zoe, but you haven't really slowed down. Or when was, when was lightning? When was that recorded? That was recorded in August. Uh, yeah, August. So lightning, lightning is your game show that you're that you're doing. Yes, yes. I've been watching. I've been watching non-stop game shows uh, for the last month. Uh, <laughs> talk to us. Uh, why? Yeah. Because uh, I'm mentally ill, Zoe, and <laughs> it takes my mind off things. Right. Okay. Nice. But um, but uh, talk us through lightning, right? What is it? So I've you, seen it. I've seen it, by the way, yeah. and it's really great. But tell us what it is. So it, the premise of the show is it is a quiz. It's our um, contestants coming back over the course of a week, unless they get to the final and, and, and then they get a chance to win money. And the basic thing is timed amount of time. Uh, they have to answer questions. If they get a question right, they can nominate somebody to be in the light. 
And if you're in the light when the time runs out, you're eliminated. It's basically the re- it's like a reverse sort of pass the parcel, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, two-minute rounds, they vary. Uh, somebody starts in the light, when you get something right, pass the light. You get it right, pass the light. And if you're in the light when the time runs out, you're a goner. So there's various sort of s- strategies that people can play with it and stuff. It was very, very good fun to do. I loved it. I'd never, I'd no idea I wanted to be a, a, a quiz show host. And then they put me in a shiny suit and put me in a studio, and I went, "I've always wanted to be a quiz show host. This is what I want to do." I do. It feels like such a big deal. Yeah. Like, uh, to say, but it is. It's a massive thing, isn't it? Because you think, well, who else gets to do this? It's a. Re- you're, you're in now a very small group of people, a very small oh pool God. of. And the, the funny thing is. Like, we did so much prep, because obviously we did it in COVID, so there was lots of things that had to be altered and shifted and changed. And um, I'm a really bad reader, and uh, obviously it's about reading questions, and we had to sort of work through that and how we'd sort of break things up so that my brain could read them. And then we got in the studio, and we started, and I suddenly went, nobody's asked me if I can do this. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a format? Was it an original format? Was it from another country or? So how did it? How did how did it how did it come about? So you filmed it in August. It yeah. all came about during COVID. Yeah. Uh, when did you first hear about it, and, and what happened? I got Christian, my agent, phoned me. I mean, the, the year before, because it all got delayed, and said, oh, "I've got you um, a run through an audition for a game show." And I went, "Oh, great!" And in my head went, "That'll never happen." Um, <laughs> And uh, went along and did the run through. I got on really, I got on really well with the producer. Well, I got, initially I, I thought he he doesn't like me. He doesn't like me. Uh, he, uh, he really doesn't like me. I thought I've got to find something that we can talk about other than telly that'll get things going. Anyway, it turns out he likes cars, and I like cars. And I mentioned I just bought this car, and he, his eyes lit up. And then we just started talking about cars, and then that was it. That was it. That was literally it. And then we, we got on really well and blah, 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 blah. And I think, I think he championed me through then after that. It was like, I could have the job. So, yeah. So when you say that and it's a run-through, so are we to assume that when they're setting this game show up, they've got a few people in mind that they test out to yeah. be the host? Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I still don't know who the others were, actually. Oh, I imagine. I must ask them. Yeah. You must ask them. Yeah, I must ask. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I go into these things. I left the run through, and my brain went, "That oh, was shit, <laughs> you know, idiot. Go and stick your head in the bin." And uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> about a month later, they came back with, "We loved you." And I went, "Wow, I just really don't know myself at all." <laughs> I don't know myself. I don't know. I do often come away from things going, well, I mean, that'll be the last time you'll ever work. And then they're like, oh, we want you to do that again. I'm like, that happens, but that happens with sort of auditions where you go in and you think, I nailed that, and then you never hear from them again. Or yeah. you go in and it's like, that was fucking awful. And then you go, well, well done, you got the part. And you go, so I don't think that it's not for you to have any judgment in it it's literally for you to just go and do it and then forget that it ever happened and then if it was all right then you'll find out about it in two weeks time do you know what i mean it's weird isn't it it's really (laughs) weird and i don't often get auditions and i you know even less frequently 
I don't often get the, the initial audition and I very rarely get the job after the audition. So to do something like that and then get the job, I was like, wow, wow, okay. So this means now someone is flicking through their channels and going, oh, I went up for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to do lightning. Yeah, I was going to do that. I, I wouldn't have done it the way she did it. Um, How quickly do you... Because you, I guess, have to absorb the rules. And I think yeah. with when you're watching game shows or there's a new game show starting, it I think it takes me 10 weeks before I fully understand the rules. Work it out. Yeah. The thing with Lightning was it's actually quite simple. It's really simple. And you go, has this not been done before? You know when something's so simple, you're like, this is really... Has this been done before? I mean, of course, it's been done in bits, because it's been done before. But, yeah, the premise of the show is quite quite easy. Quite well, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like sort of a spin the bottle type thing, where <laughs> it's who the thing lands on. Yeah. Well, it's, I suppose it's a little bit like uh, it's nothing like Wheel of Fortune, but in the sense that <laughs> you, it's it's kind of like there's a ra- in the concept of you spin something and then yeah. it lands on someone. But in the case of this, it's like you have people that are nominating. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, if there's someone that's rubbish at answering, uh, so there's an element of almost weakest link. A little bit, and like... then there's obviously strategy because do you want to get rid of the weakest person or the strongest person? Um, uh, and you can be brilliant at quizzing, absolutely brilliant, and then just you know have the light thrown to you and be out straight away. You might need enough time to answer a question. So it is that, Cause... yeah, jeopardy. We Cause... had some contestants that were, I'm, and as, and as lovely as they were, I'm going to say they were perhaps a little over-ambitious in, um, in their own quizabilities um, and um, properly bad and still managed to survive quite a long time. It's quite like that. Do you, so you film five in a day, do you? Yeah. I What's that like? I, cause I, so I'm watching a lot of um, The Chase. Yeah. And uh, so they do, okay, so on the Sony channel, they show old episodes of Millionaire uh, from at like 11 o'clock until 1.30 in the morning. And oh. at 1.30 in the morning on Sony, they start showing MASH. I'm not a fan of MASH. So then I switch over two channels up to Challenge TV, where as a secondary, I think old Millionaire is the best. Yeah. And then as a secondary option, when Millionaire's off, I go into Challenge TV and I fall asleep watching The Chase. Right. I've grown up watching The Chase, but I'd never seen a whole episode until this uh, the last month. So I didn't know what the rules were. Uh, and I've, I've taught myself what the rules are recently. Yeah. Um, and I know how it works where they film like five episodes a day and you can spot when Bradley's sort of like at the end of a day. Yeah. You know, when you watch them back to back like that, every see, night, five, five, five episodes ago, yeah. you can see the fifth episode where Bradley's like dead behind the eyes. He's still doing the chat, but basically the undercurrent of what he's saying is, yeah, 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 yeah let's play the game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's utterly exhausting. And the thing is, because I'd never done it before and it wasn't you showed, we had technical problems. So I wasn't supposed to film five a day. We were supposed to do like two a day and then three a day and then build up to five a day. But we had technical issues, so that had to be scrapped and we had to go straight into doing five a day. And um, I don't think I've ever been so tired. <laughs> are there any, uh, you, are there any do, things that you could tell us that if we were watching, we'd be able to tell which ones were, were the fifth one? Do you, do you have any tells, like in poker? No, I don't know. Um, 
Well, actually, they were filmed in they were filmed in chronological order of when they were going. They were filmed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So it'd be the Friday episodes. Whenever you're watching the Friday episode, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> what B is a flying into? <laughs> oh, I mean, when we I, just... I burst into when we finished when we did the last one, I just spontaneously burst into tears. Yeah. I did. I did a food show, and we filmed an episode a day. And on the very first day, you obviously you're filming a whole episode in one day, which is awful. I won't. I don't recommend it. But, yeah. um, but you, you, in your head, you're thinking, if that was shit, that's a whole episode that's shit. I've le- I'm learning on my on on my feet. And if that episode is, sh- if that day was shit, that yeah. whole episode was shit. So if you're doing five in a day and you're learning on your feet, did you find you learn episode by episode and you could actually see, you go, oh, okay, after the first one, you're kind of like, oh, I'm getting into this now. And yeah. by the end of the day, you were like, I am fucking nailing it. Or yeah. was it like at the end of the day, you go, well, that was a write off. That's five final level, you know. Do you know we were pretty consistent. We were pretty consistent. Do you know what I just kept thinking? I just kept thinking, I am tired. This is quite hard work. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I might not ever get this opportunity again. So I'm absolutely going to try and nail it. And so I just, I kept so focused. I kept so so focused. And um, thankfully, they gave me lovely contestants as well, as well, who had who had great banter. So it was it was quite easy. But um, yeah, I just kept thinking, this is better than working in a factory or a, or a, or a warehouse or a you know or or being a Chilean miner. This is better. This is better. This is better. Be grateful, and it just that just powers you through, doesn't it? Because you're working, you work your tits off for a week. You know, you get rewarded for it, so it's fine. You know, you've got to balance it up. It's not like you're coming out yeah. of it and they're going and after tax and a sandwich as a fiver. So you're all right. You know, it's okay. You yeah. Get your mind around it. Yeah. Is that also why, because you're doing something else, that gives you, that means you don't have to do gigs in Bath that you don't want to yeah. do, right? Yeah. Because you've got, you've yeah. got something else going. I always think that's a thing where, uh, so I can say this to someone who's absolutely not successful whatsoever, but but I always think that's perfectly reasonable. Like I think there's this idea, isn't there, that people who do stand up. It's got to be this sort of for the art of it and for the love of it. Yeah. And the idea of not doing it for a bit is almost seen a bit like, oh, oh, you think oh. you're too good for it now, do you? Yeah. There's a sort of weird snobbishness to it. I'm just tired and I don't want to eat any more pasties in a low but, but it's also, you kind of like go, um, oh, you do stand up all the time and then you get your quiz show and then you go back and you can use the success from the quiz show in order to sell oh. tickets. Yeah. But you're selling tickets to people. That watch, watch quiz your quiz show. show. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, then, yeah. And, you know, it's like when I did Uncle, I sort of like, st- you know, started doing gigs to people that are fans of Uncle and they're all looking at me like, where's the little boy? And you're just like, and it's, it's a different, fucking, yeah. it's different. This is different. Um, I, I find that really weird. One of the things that I've noticed um, about game shows is I've been watching uh, Wheel of Fortune and Nicky Campbell is like full of like bants and stuff. And then you've got Carol Smiley and then there's the guy that does the voiceover and then he does stuff with it. And the game is very simple. Uh, but every time they come away from the game and do stuff, it gets really boring and you just like get back to the game. And when you watch The Chase, Bradley going like, I'll talk, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your job? Okay, that's interesting. Back to the game. And you kind of like, um, it's, it's inter- I've learned a lot about quiz shows. I yeah. find it really, I find it really interesting how they all work. Do you enjoy it? Do, do I enjoy being in it? Do I enjoy, 
oh. the process of doing it. Yeah, love it. I really love it. Um, I love I, I, I loved talking to them. I loved the, the contestants were just really good fun. And they're, you know, they're, you've got to be a little bit mad to want to go on a quiz show, I think, haven't you? I, mean, <laughs> I don't know anybody who's been on a quiz show. And you're like, who, who goes on these things? And when you meet them, you're like, oh, it's, it's people like you. Okay, fine, fair enough. <laughs> you know, and um, uh, yeah, I loved the slight cheesiness of it. I liked being a, a game show host. I, I did play it slightly cheesy. I had a shiny suit. I loved every bit. Did you get to choose it? We sort of chose it together. It's quite really interesting. It's what the general public were just affronted that I should wear the same suit. I mean, I had a couple of them, but, you know, it was like, it's an outfit. It's a uniform. It's, you know, it's a shiny suit. I can't wear that one week and then rock up in a pair of dungarees the following week. You know, if you're going for shiny suit, you've sort of hit... You know, you can't then just turn up in your shorts. You've got to keep with shiny suit. But also that that, um, talking to the contestants is something that you will be absolutely accomplished in doing anyway just yeah, from gigging. comparing gigs. Yeah. You're sort of perfect for the job without even knowing it. Yeah. Because you've had so much experience. You know, because I run a gig here in Brighton, like what I you did, you know, when we were allowed out. And um, I, I, every month, and, and because there were so many regulars there, I couldn't do material, so I had to just talk to them. So um, that skill is where that came from. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I was. Tr- I, uh, we've got right. We've got three minutes, uh, and then it's the end of the show. We've got to play a game with you, Zoe. Right. Uh, but I just wanted to say that I think the theme tune to Lightning is great, and Nathaniel, uh, it sounds exactly like uh, Claudio Simonetti. I told you that, Zoe. Oh yeah. Oh, so yeah. you should both, Nathaniel, check out the theme tune to Lightning, and, uh, and I've Zoe, seen Lightning. I don't check remember that. Check out Claudio Simonetti because right. it's like it, it's like he wrote the theme tune. Right. We're going to play a game with you now, Zoe. I'm going right. to. Hand you over to Nathaniel. Nathaniel's going to take over. It's called Better or Worse. Right. Okay, it's the game. It's Better or Worse. And you just have to say whether the next person on the list is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinions to score points. Beginning with Ice Tea. Is Vanilla Ice better or worse than Ice Tea? It's worse. It's worse. Worse. It's worse. Jackie Chan, better or worse than Vanilla Ice? Better. 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 Jackie Collins, better or worse than Jackie Chan? Worse. 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 Joan Collins, better or worse than Jackie Collins? Better. 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 (laughs) Colin Firth, better or worse than Joan Collins? Oh, uh, he's better. Better. Yeah. Colin Farrell, better or worse than Colin Firth? Worse. Worse. (laughs) Spike Lee, better or worse than Colin Farrell? Better. Spike Lee. Better. Better. Bruce Lee, better or worse than Spike Lee? Oh, I'm going to say better. 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 Yeah. Bruce Springsteen, better or worse than Bruce Lee? Better. Worse. Worse than Bruce Lee, yeah. Bruce Willis, better or worse than Bruce Springsteen? Oh, worse. 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 Yeah. I think it's a 10. Yes! It's a 10! You got a 10! You got a 10! You got a 10! Oh my god! That never happens! Oh, hell! This is why, this is why you're so great at game shows! I am so oh, great good! Yes. The host becomes the hosted! Uh, if, that's, if that doesn't have any connotations, um, that's great! Right. So, right, this is brilliant! Uh, so you scored a 10, which means that you are uh, the best that you could possibly be with. 
Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, John Colshaw, Jason Manfred, Jerry Scandani, and you're better than David Padil, Ken Cheng, Mike Drucker, Harry Hill, Dominic Monaghan, Luke Morley, uh, with nine, uh, Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Henry Fraser, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Isaac, Simon West, John Niven, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kai, Miranda Raisin, Griff Reese Jones, Chris Stark, Baroness Saeed Avasi, Stu Whiffen, Michael J. White, and Gillian White, with eight, Richard Herring, James King, Judy Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varley, Johnny Vegas, with seven, Gary Delaney, Nell Frizzell, Frank Harper, with six, and Dave McLean, poor old Dave McLean, with five, Zoe Lyons, you're one of my favourite comedians. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been Thank you for coming. Been lovely to talk to you for an hour. Welcome to the fan clubhouse. Uh, <laughs> it's goodbye from me, Nick Helm. It's goodbye from Nathaniel. And it's goodbye. Goodbye, from... goodbye Zoe. Woo, goodbye. Yes. Uh, everybody, look after yourselves. Look after each other. Wash your hands. Uh, we're not out of it yet, but we almost are. Uh, uh, take care. Goodbye. See you next week. Tell your friends. <laughs>